My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the gospel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was a young boy, about eight or nine, my dad took us all on a mission trip slash vacation. Um, And we were fortunate enough to be able to go to Europe. And we started in Holland and kind of was able to make our way through, drive through Germany and some other places. And there were some churches that he was partnered with there. And so he would go and teach and do meetings. And then he, um, we would go do vacation stuff. And um, so it was our whole family kind of crammed into this very, very small car. Uh, our first time in the Autobahn was, uh, was very interesting to say the least. But we found our way into Norway. And we went to this little town in Norway called Bergen where we were gonna stay with some of his friends. And um, when we got there, I saw in the garage that they had a bicycle. So I said, oh, can we ride bikes? Because they had a, a, a kid, my, a son, very close to age to me, and he had a bicycle, and there was a bicycle in there, so everyone's like, yeah, sure, that, that's a good idea. So we rode bicycles. And uh, I remember, as I bicycled down to the end of the street, basically, so just imagine the, uh, the end of the big concrete slab here is uh, the end of the street. So I bicycled up, and I looked over like this, and there's a massive, di- well, I wanted to say ditch, but it was more like a gorge, a fjord, if you will, if you're into Norwegian words, right? This ma- really big, it was bigger than a ditch. Not quite as big as a fjord, obviously, I would have died. But um, the bike went over, and I found myself kind of clutched on for dear life. And I had enough presence of mind not to like make myself fall over, because there were rocks everywhere. But eventually what happened, I rammed off of a big rock, came off of a bike, and uh, hurtled towards a very large rock, and hit my skull right here. You can still see the scar, though. It's been a very long time, so it's not faded. So I was able to climb back up, and um, my parents cleaned me up. They called whatever the Norwegian equivalent of 911 was, and they came and took me in the ambulance to the hospital, and they sewed me up, and I had to stay overnight. But it's a a long story. So basically what happened was I had to come back to the States, and I had to do surgery. And um, after the surgery... I had a new list of things that I had to do, and a whole bunch of list of things that a list of things that I had that, that I wasn't able to do. Right. So before I was fairly I was active because yeah, I'm a little boy. I was eight years eight eight nine years old. After the surgery, I couldn't play any sports. I can't I couldn't play any sports because they had to repair a skull fracture, and so the bone in my skull sort of needed time to grow back together after they had repaired it. So I couldn't ride bicycles anymore for a while, which was probably a good thing. Um, I couldn't play sports. I had to be very careful. Um, Just a lot of activities um, because I needed time to heal. So in a way, I had to learn to reorient myself to the world given the experience that that I had just had, right? There was a way of life that I had before and then after that incident, I had to reorient how I acted and how I lived 
in the world. And I, I was old enough where I had to take a degree of responsibility for it because my parents couldn't just be with me every day saying, I know you really want to go play baseball. I really know you want to go play soccer or football, but you know, you, you probably shouldn't. They weren't there to do that. I had to learn to do that on my own. And it was frustrating. It was very frustrating. But after time, I had, I had become used to navigating the world in a new way with the mind towards my health. And then the story turned out a little bit happier, right? As I got older, I was able to start to participate, uh, participate in sports and activities and, and things like that again. But when I read the passage from the Gospel of Mark that Cindy just read for us a few moments earlier, this popped back into my head. Because in this story, we see a similar theme of reorientation. Reorientation. And so today I'm going to preach on confession, confrontation, and reorientation. So in this portion from the Gospel of Mark, and I know all of my Mark students that are here are like, Yay, Mark! Jesus, that was a plug, by the way. It begins with Jesus traveling... It begins with Jesus traveling with his disciples from Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus has just performed the miracle of feeding the 4,000 with a few loaves and a fish. And it's basically he's repeating among the Gentiles a miracle that he performed for the people of Israel when he fed the 5,000 a few chapters before. And as they're walking, Jesus asks his disciples two questions. The first question he asks them is, who do people say that I am? And they responded, some think you're John the baptizer. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And these are all interesting answers, but they all have one thing in common in that they are all precursors to the Messiah. The prophets, Elijah, John the baptizer, they were all the ones who were to come before. And so the people are identifying the ones who were before with the one who is there present now, not the actual Messiah himself. So in other words, many of the people cannot see who Jesus is. Jesus then shifts the conversation and he asks the second question, well, who do you say that I am? Now that I got everybody else's, you tell me about who everybody else is saying about me, what about you, my followers, my disciples? Who do you think I am? I'm saying Peter chimes right in, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Peter finally gets something right. So in light of the public believing that Jesus is a precursor to the Messiah, Peter and the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, which is major. This is, this is important. But there's a problem. And that problem is in their expectation of what the Messiah is going to do. So there's multiple strands of sort of messianic belief in the air, in the ancient world at the time, among God's people. And there's a bunch of different views about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah was going to do. But generally speaking, they believe that the Messiah would be a messianic king, a militaristic leader, a political kind of king-like figure. And the prototype for this would be David. And we all know the story of David. David is like the example of what they thought the Messiah was going who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. And David 
won a lot of battles. He didn't lose many. He didn't lose some, but he won lots of battles. And he took a lot of territory. And he fought successfully against the enemies of God and against God's people. And then this idea of this messianic, this militaristic political king ruler, they believed that this would also coincide with the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. Uh, and a spiritual awakening. The day of the Lord is when Yahweh, the God of Israel, comes. He, he comes to, to, to finally establish justice. And ancient Christians pick up on that, identifying Jesus as Yahweh and tying that in with the return of Christ that we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed a few moments ago. So the disciples most likely had something like this in mind and I think that that's true given what Peter says to Jesus. What happens right after he confesses Jesus as the Christ. And this would also explain why the disciples would say things after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, like, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? Or James and John asking Jesus to sit at his left and right hand in his kingdom. And Jesus begins to explain to them what being the Christ, Christ is a term that means the anointed one, what the Christ, the Messiah, what the Messiah is going to do and what the, the Messiah is going to bring, what's going to happen to the Messiah. Utter rejection by the religious and cultural leaders followed by death. And then after death, the resurrection. And it says here, Mark, he does this plainly and not in parables. And this is not received well given what happens next. So you have this confusion and now, in response to this, we have a confrontation. Peter, he takes Jesus aside privately. At least he had enough presence of mind to do that. To, hey, come, come over here, Jesus. Come, come over here. Let's, just the two of us. We'll let those guys, you and me, we'll sort this out. Remember, I'm the one that said, you are the Christ. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And, and Peter seems to be a little bit confused here as the pattern of who the Messiah is and what's going to happen to the Messiah isn't meeting his expectations. And there's also Jesus's, uh, Peter, I mean, seems to be a little bit confused as to who is the teacher and who is the disciple. God bless you, motorcyclist. Be blessed as you drive. No accidents. Amen. Very loud. And the airplane, too, flying over there. So Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. He begins to try to censure or to admonish Jesus. So I think what Peter might have in mind is that he's trying to set Jesus straight on what should be happening as the Messiah, right? No, 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 you're not supposed to suffer and die. You're supposed to rule and reign like David, remember? And I think it's possible Jesus thought that, that, that Peter thought that Jesus was testing them. You guys are right and have been listening after all. Good job. No. Jesus is having none of this. And just as Peter has rebuked him, he rebukes Peter in an even more intense way. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right? He calls Peter the devil. Have you ever read this text and thought to yourself, well, that seems a little harsh. It's okay. Show of hands. That's a little harsh. Why did Peter call Jesus the devil? Or why did Jesus call Peter the devil? I keep making this mistake, mixing them up in my storytelling. I apologize. It seems a little harsh. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Like, surely Peter isn't as bad as all that. 
Sure, he's dense from time to time, and he runs his mouth, but that doesn't make him equivalent to the devil or to Satan. It's a little harsh, Jesus. I thought you were supposed to be nice, Jesus. But look at what Peter is trying to do. He's, tr- he's trying to get Jesus to bypass the way of the cross. He's trying to get Jesus to go about his mission in a different way, in a way that won't result in his rejection and death. So then this should make you think, brothers and sisters, as good students of God's word, as I know you are, of what event in the Gospels where something similar to this happens. Now, St. Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail in the beginning of his Gospel. He just says that Jesus was out in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. But we do get more detail in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels about what happens in the in the desert. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and who does he encounter in the wilderness? Satan. And what does Satan do? What does Satan do? He, defend, he, he attempts to, to, to defeat, defeat Jesus, to get Jesus to serve him. He says, he, remember, to get like the, the last one, right? He takes Jesus up and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I'm going to give you all of this if you will worship me. Everything that you're here to do, you can do it without the cross if you just worship me. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan, or away with you, Satan, or go away. Right? So Peter, taking Jesus aside, and rebuking him for what Jesus is trying to explain to them and what's to come, Peter has placed himself in the role of Satan, trying to get Jesus to fulfill the plan of his father by going, not by going to the way of the cross, but by a different way. Hence, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus, I think, needs to shock him with the seriousness of what he's saying. And he needs to then confront and reorient Peter to his proper place as a disciple of Jesus. Right? And the disciple's job is to what? Is to follow. When Jesus calls the disciples, he says to them, follow me. And where do you follow? In front or do you follow behind? That's not a trick question. You follow behind. You don't follow alongside. You don't follow in front. You follow behind. It's the job of the disciples to follow Jesus as Jesus leads. They follow his way, his path, his example, his plan. Jesus leads. They follow. And Peter is unwittingly usurping Jesus' place as their Lord, as their teacher. Much in the same way, Satan rebels against his rightful role and place at the beginning. Hence, (laughs) hence Jesus' harsh language. But he does say this to Peter, right? 
To Satan, he just says, go. He says, go away. I'll wait with you. Same word in Greek, hypage, that he says to Peter. Go away. But then he says, get back behind me. So he doesn't cast Peter out. Right? He says, get back in line. Get back in your place, which is behind me. Follow me. Be quiet, <laughs> essentially, right? So then Jesus calls. We're going to talk a little bit about reorientation here. Jesus calls the disciples and the crowd, right? So he gets, it's first it's Peter and Jesus. Then uh, Jesus rebukes him. Then he calls all the disciples and the crowd to come around. And then he begins to teach them about what discipleship really is, which is ultimately the way of the cross. Jesus is the center of everything. Everything. Everything else revolves around his orbit. And this isn't pride, and this isn't a state this isn't a statement of you know somebody with like a deranged ego. Now, those who want to follow Jesus as his disciples are to follow in the pattern that he is setting out for them to follow. And that pattern is the giving up of his life for them. They are called to take up their cross and to walk with him to his and to their own crucifixion. And the acquisition of material wealth, right? Because he says, what good is it if you gain the world and you lose your soul? The acquisition of material wealth may on the surface seem to be a good goal to strive towards for us, right? But Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the world but lose your soul? What good is it? What good is it if you build a massive space company and are able to finally build a rocket and send it to Mars and get people to go to Mars and come back? What happens if you're able to, to, to finance that and to build that, but you, you die and you go to hell? What good is it? Those who live that way aim towards what ultimately cannot satisfy. And at the end, they'll see that they're striving is in vain as they sought in things what can only be found in the gospel forgiveness and the call to discipleship to follow Jesus so this brothers and sisters is this radical reorientation of their lives around the person and work of Jesus Christ away from their preconceived notions of who they think Jesus is to who Jesus actually is is from the preconceived notion of David, Elijah, John the Baptizer, one of the prophets, to who Jesus actually is, the Christ, the Son of God, and what he's been sent to do, to go up to Jerusalem and to die. But he says, after three days, rise again. Now, for us, we are, we like to see ourselves in the story, in the biblical stories as maybe Jesus. Or, or we like to think to ourselves, well, if, if I was there, Jesus wouldn't have yelled at me. I would have been the one who understood. No, you wouldn't have. I wouldn't have either, okay? And I'm a pastor, right? I think most people wouldn't have. 
We wouldn't have. For us, this, I think, sets out a pattern, right? This, this pattern of, 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 of confusion, of confrontation, and of reorientation is something that we all, that we all face in our own life. Because sin and death have, have, just, have corrupted everything. 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 Including our own views of who we think Jesus is. Or who God is. And what Jesus came to do. It's very popular right now to say, Jesus was crucified because he was an innocent man and the state needed to kill him because he was a threat to authority. So they killed an innocent man, and this is to teach us that the state is bad and we need to resist the powers of the state. That's not who Jesus is. That's not what the cross is. So, we views of Jesus like that in our own day and age our expectations of what we think Jesus is, our expectations of what we think the Messiah did, those have to be challenged and confronted by Jesus, the actual Jesus, who he is, what he did, and his ongoing work for us. Right? It's our own confrontation with the glory of the gospel as it's proclaimed in all of its beauty, as the gospel is proclaimed in all of its saving power. It's our own confrontation with when we were still in sin, Christ died for us. That's the purpose of the cross. It's through the cross. God is, through Jesus Christ, reconciling the entire world to himself. And so that then, as we come into that, into that union with God, through saving faith, through the waters of baptism, having been justified, having peace with God, which then enables us to have peace with one another, right? That then reorients us in new ways. It reorients us around the orbit of Jesus Christ. And what it does is, is it takes us and it takes us away from steering the ship of our own life. And it takes us and it puts us behind Jesus. As Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Or maybe a better analogy would be, we're still there at the steering wheel, but Jesus is at the front, beckoning us and pointing us in the right direction. Whichever. So how we live, how we spend our money, what we do with our time, all of these things are challenged by the way of the cross. And ultimately, Jesus saying, take up our cross to follow him. It also means, according to St. Augustine, that the cross that we are to take, take up to follow him is the mortality of this flesh. This is our own cross, which the Lord commands us to carry that we may be well armed and as possible in following him. We suffer momentarily until death is swallowed up in victory. Then this cross itself will be crucified. The cross will be nailed to the fear of God. 
Right? So St. Augustine, this taking up of our cross and following of this reorientation of our life in, in pursuit of him, following him because of what he's done for us, right? The cross is also our own mortality, that we will one day lay down our own life and in doing so, rise with Jesus Christ, to whom is due all glory together with the Father, who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower, as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion's Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, ZionStoneUCC.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.